just a little dough everywhere we go. All we want to do is spend it. Thanks to credit cards, the payments got so large. In debt we have descended. On their electric books, the Federal Reserve cooks. They're counterfeited paper. Though we think it's real dough, little do we all know. It's made from naught but vapor. Just a little dough everywhere we go. All we want to do is spend it. Thanks to credit cards. Welcome, my friends. Welcome to another edition of the Corbett Report. I am your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you, as always, from the sunny climes of western Japan on the 16th day of November, 2008. I'd like to welcome all the listeners to the Corbett Report and remind them, as always, to check into the homepage, CorbettReport.com, to find previous episodes of the podcast, as well as interviews, videos, and articles that we have written and conducted in the past. And of course, you can subscribe to our RSS feeds by clicking on the subscribe button in order to stay up to date with all of the latest updates to the website. There you'll also be able to find a documentation list with links to all of the documents cited in today's episode by simply clicking on the Episodes tab, finding today's episode, and clicking on the Documentation button. This will take you to a list sorted by time index with links to all of the articles, video, and audio cited in today's episode. Regular followers of the Corbett Report may have noted that there was no weekly YouTube documentary series edition this week, and that's because we're working hard right now in order to finish the documentary Al-Qaeda Doesn't Exist. The documentary itself is going to be made available in its entirety online for free, and we're hoping to release it next month. So please stay tuned to CorbettReport.com this week for the release of the Al-Qaeda Doesn't Exist trailer, which will contain information about the documentary's website. Unfortunately, because there are only so many hours in the day, the weekly YouTube documentary series from the Corbett Report will be suspended until this documentary is released. And remember, we'll need your help and support in getting the word out about this documentary. So when the information about the documentary starts to become available, please don't wait for orders from headquarters. Start posting it, emailing it, spreading the link, and getting your friends to take a look at it as well. Finally, once again, I'd like to say thank you to all of those listeners who take the time and energy and money to donate to The Corbett Report via the Donate button on CorbettReport.com. Unfortunately, I don't have time to thank everyone individually, but to all my listeners, if you drop me an email, I will eventually get back to you, although it may take some time. And now, without further ado, let's get to today's real news. Today's first real news story comes from WSWS.org from the 6th of November 2008. Obama advisors discuss preparations for war on Iran. Behind the backs of American voters, top advisors for President-elect Barack Obama have been setting the stage for a dramatic escalation of confrontation with Iran as soon as the new administration takes office. A report released in September from the Bipartisan Policy Center, a Washington-based think tank, 
argued that a nuclear weapons-capable Iran was strategically untenable and detailed a robust approach incorporating new diplomatic, economic, and military tools in an integrated fashion. A key member of the center's task force was Obama's top Middle East advisor, Dennis Ross, who is well known for his hawkish views. He backed the U.S. invasion of Iraq and is closely associated with neocons such as Paul Wolfowitz. Ross worked under Wolfowitz in the Carter and Reagan administrations before becoming the chief Middle East envoy under Presidents Bush Sr. and Clinton. After leaving the State Department in 2000, he joined the right-wing pro-Israel think tank, the Washington Institute for Near East Policy, and signed up as a foreign policy analyst for Fox News. The Bipartisan Policy Center report insisted that time was short, declaring Tehran's progress means that the next administration might have little time and fewer options to deal with this threat. It rejected out of hand both Tehran's claims that its nuclear programs were for peaceful purposes and the 2007 National Intelligence Estimate by U.S. intelligence agencies, which found that Iran had ended any nuclear weapons program in 2003. Today's second real news story comes from Reuters via geopoliticalmonitor.com, 13th of November 2008. U.S.-Russia spar on missiles. Ukraine eyes NATO. The United States criticized on Thursday Russian threats to deploy tactical missiles near the Polish border, and the NATO military alliance said it would press for closer ties with Ukraine. Moscow is at odds with Washington over its plan to install parts of a missile defense shield in Eastern Europe, and with NATO over former Soviet Ukraine's ambition to join the military alliance, fearful Russian security would be threatened. The NATO-Ukraine talks were being held in the capital of Estonia, another former Soviet republic, which entered NATO in 2004, breaking away from its powerful neighbor to the east. Russia has threatened to put tactical missiles in Kaliningrad, its Baltic enclave next to Poland, if the United States goes ahead and puts part of the shield against what Washington calls rogue states in Europe. U.S. Defense Secretary Robert Gates, speaking after a NATO meeting with Ukraine, said the Russian threats were hardly the welcome a new American administration deserved, referring to the fact that they were made immediately after Barack Obama won a presidential election. Such provocative remarks are unnecessary and misguided, Gates told a news conference. He said the United States did not want a relationship with Russia headed toward the past. Our final real news story today comes from PrisonPlanet.com, November 15, 2008. 2009 terror attack being peddled by establishment media, intelligence sources. London Times report conveniently links alleged terror cells to Obama's number one target, Pakistan. The notion that terrorists will attack America shortly after Barack Obama takes office is again being vigorously pushed by the corporate media, as well as shadowy intelligence sources, and has reached the same crescendo that preceded 9-11, a disturbing sign that the public is being prepared for a newly manufactured mass casualty event. The London Times today reports, Barack Obama is being given ominous advice from leaders on both sides of the Atlantic to brace himself for an early assault from terrorists. Lord West of Spithead, the UK Home Office Security Minister, spoke recently of a huge threat, saying, There is another great plot building up again, and we are monitoring this. 
The report links the activity to so-called al-Qaeda cells operating out of Pakistan, which is certainly convenient considering Obama's stated intention to support and even expand the scope of continued bombing raids on the country in the name of killing terrorists. Is a new atrocity being planned so as to provide President Obama with the complete justification to attack areas of Pakistan, just as 9-11 provided the pretext for Bush to launch the prearranged attack on Afghanistan in the same year that he took office in 2001? Warnings that Obama will face a crisis shortly after entering office have been voluminous. Vice President-elect Joe Biden told an audience in Seattle last month, we're going to have an international crisis, a generated crisis, to test the mettle of this guy. Biden was vehement in his proclamation, stating that it was a guarantee and a promise that Obama would face an international crisis and that tough and unpopular decisions would have to be made to combat it. Colin Powell made similar statements when he endorsed Obama on Meet the Press, saying, there's going to be a crisis which will come along on the 21st, 22nd of January that we don't even know about right now. Former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright also told CNN's John Roberts, It's just a statement of fact. Something unexpected. You always have to be prepared for that. Top Obama advisors Bignu Brzezinski also told CNN that Obama will face imminent problems immediately upon taking office. The confidence with which top globalists are forecasting a crisis that will unfold at some point next year is staggering, and it strongly hints that a new manufactured horror is in the works to get the country behind Obama and mandate him to make the unpopular decisions that he is already preparing. Welcome to episode 64 of the Corbett Report, End the Fed. The significance of that title, and of the clip that you just heard, will become apparent by the end of the episode, but right now suffice it to say that this is one of the upbeat episodes of the Corbett Report that tries to offer positive solutions to the problems that we're facing. Although, of course, we must start with the onerous task of going over the problems, defining them, coming to a better understanding of them, and then, finally, seeing how we can combat and eventually overcome these problems. The problem that we'll be dealing with today is the ongoing economic turmoil, which we've talked about at length in previous episodes of the Corbett Report. One of the previous episodes dealing with this problem, episode 56, was entitled The Week the New World Order Arrived, 
talking about the week that Lehman Brothers went under and the current round of global financial instability began. Now, of course, that title has been completely vindicated and would appear to be prophetic. Type New World Order into Google News and you'll receive literally hundreds of articles about this weekend summit in Washington of the G20 nations seeking to rebuild the financial world order in order to combat the current crisis. Some of the more blatant headlines include this one from the telegraph.co.uk from the 11th of November 2008. Gordon Brown calls for New World Order to beat recession. That article reads in part, quote, Mr. Brown will call on fellow world leaders to use the current worldwide economic downturn as an opportunity to thoroughly reform international financial institutions and create a new truly global society with Britain, the U.S., and Europe providing leadership. His call comes ahead of an emergency summit of world leaders and finance ministers from 20 major countries, the G20, in Washington next weekend. Mr. Brown will say that the Washington meeting must establish a consensus on a new Bretton Woods-style framework for the international financial system, featuring a reformed International Monetary Fund, which will act as a global early warning system for financial problems. Mr. Brown's plan for strengthening the global economy 60 years later involves recapitalization of banks to permit the resumption of normal lending to households and businesses, better international coordination of fiscal and monetary policy, and a new IMF fund to help struggling economies and stop financial problems spreading between nations. He also wants agreement on a world trade deal and reform of the international financial system based on principles of transparency, integrity, responsibility, sound banking practice, and global governance with coordination across borders. End quote. Oh, well, what a warm and fuzzy article about the wonderful new world order that Gordon Brown wants to see come in as a result of this economic crisis. Some of the other very similar headlines include this one from CNNMoney.com, G20, Shaping a New World Order. This one from AsiaNews.it, Obama, World Crisis and the New World Order. This one from FoxNews.com, The New World Financial Order. This one from The Independent on Sunday, G20 Summit, New World Order, question mark. And of course, this one from the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, New Global Order Begins. Summit agrees to far-reaching changes in world economic rules. This article was released today, Sunday, November 16th, 2008, and details the consensus that was reached at the G20 Summit, which was held in Washington this weekend. It reads in part, quote, World leaders holding an emergency meeting to combat the economic crisis agreed yesterday to a far-reaching action plan that, over the next four and a half months, would begin to reshape international financial institutions and reform worldwide regulatory and accounting rules. The leader's 11-page statement spoke of broad principles, leaving the details to be worked out by lower-level aides before another summit meeting in April, after Barack Obama assumes the presidency. But the gathering in Washington of the nearly two dozen nations from every region of the world reflected the new balance of power emerging in the aftermath of a financial crisis that has devastated even well-run economies, a wrenching process that British Prime Minister Gordon Brown has dubbed the birth pangs 
of this new global order. Under the plans outlined by the leaders, countries such as China, Brazil, and India would gain greater roles and responsibilities as part of a restructuring of the international financial system, while European leaders won a commitment to new regulations and control on banks, rating agencies, and exotic financial securities. The leaders also agreed that a dramatic failure of market oversight in some advanced countries was among the root causes of the financial crisis an implicit rebuke of the United States. I'm a free market person, President George W. Bush told reporters after the summit ended, until you're told that if you don't take decisive measures, then it's conceivable that our country could go into a depression greater than the Great Depression. End quote. Imagine my surprise. The so-called leaders, i.e. puppets, of the free world are suddenly deciding that this economic crisis will be the birth of a new world order in which new global regulatory financial institutions will emerge, i.e. global government, run by the bankers, for the bankers, in which you will have no input. Of course, this is the exact thing that the Corbett Report and many other astute researchers have been saying right down to the terminology, New World Order, since before the crisis emerged into the mainstream headlines, and for the exact reasons, and in the exact way that we said it was going to emerge, with the exact proposed solutions that we told you they were going to propose. How is it possible to be this accurate, this far in advance, about something which no one could have foreseen? Well, the answer is, of course it was foreseen. Not only was it foreseen, it was engineered. And by reading the documents, like the documents from Carol Quigley, who we featured in episode 58 of the Corbett Report, we know exactly what this plan is and where it is leading. Now, combine this with the ongoing travesty, which can only be referred to, please excuse the language, as the raping of the American public, which is also known by the more friendly term the bailout, really the bank heist, that was originally sold to the American public as a $700 billion program, but which has already cost, surprise, surprise, $5 trillion, the exact number that was being thrown around by the real economic experts when this was first being floated. But of course, these were the same economic experts that predicted this crisis in the first place, so of course the mainstream media completely ignored them. But it's been confirmed now in the corporate-controlled media, so I guess we can finally believe it. And that comes from Forbes.com from November 12, 2008, under the headline, Washington's $5 trillion tab. Quote, Fighting the financial crisis has put the U.S. on the hook for some $5 trillion, a report says. So far. For all the fury over Treasury Secretary Henry Paulson's $700 billion emergency economic relief fund, it seems downright puny when compared to the running total of the government's response to the credit crisis. According to Credit Sites, a research firm in New York and London, the U.S. government has put itself on the hook for some $5 trillion so far in an attempt to arrest a collapse of the financial system. The estimate includes many of the various solutions cooked up by Paulson and his counterparts Ben Bernanke at the Federal Reserve and Sheila Baer at the Federal Deposit Insurance Corp., as the credit crisis continues to plague banks and the broader markets. End quote. Combine that with this report from Bloomberg.com from November 10th, 2008. 
Fed defies transparency aim in refusal to disclose. Quote, the Federal Reserve is refusing to identify the recipients of almost $2 trillion of emergency loans from American taxpayers or the troubled assets the central bank is accepting as collateral. Fed Chairman Ben Bernanke and Treasury Secretary Henry Paulson said in September they would comply with congressional demands for transparency in a $700 billion bailout of the banking system. Two months later, as the Fed lends far more than that in separate rescue programs that didn't require approval by Congress, Americans have no idea where their money is going or what securities the banks are pledging in return. President-elect Barack Obama's economic advisor, Jason Furman, also didn't respond to an email and a phone call seeking comment from Obama. In a September 22nd campaign speech, Obama promised to make our government open and transparent so that anyone can ensure that our business is the people's business. End quote. For those who didn't catch the significance of that article, it can only be restated that $2 trillion in Fed lending that is, money coming out of thin air created out of nothing by the privately owned Central Bank of the United States, was loaned out without the approval of Congress, of course, as the Federal Reserve is a privately owned bank and not a creature of Congress, as Alan Greenspan himself admitted in an interview with Jim Lehrer earlier this year. And they also are not required to disclose exactly where the money is being lent or what is being accepted as collateral. It is absolutely 100% opaque. The American public is not allowed to know. We do know this much, however. Paulson Shift's course won't buy troubled assets. This comes from MSNBC.com, November 12, 2008. Quote, In a stunning turnabout, the Bush administration Wednesday abandoned the original centerpiece of its $700 billion effort to rescue the financial system and said it will not use the money to purchase troubled bank assets. Our assessment at this time is that this, the purchase of toxic assets, is not the most effective way to use funds, Treasury Secretary Henry Paulson told a news conference. Paulson said the administration will continue to use $250 billion of the program to purchase stocks in banks as a way to bolster their balance sheets and encourage them to resume more normal lending. End quote. Once again, the entire justification for the bank heist, or should I say the $700 billion bailout as the corporate-controlled media continues to call it, despite the fact that it's admittedly $5 trillion plus so far, was to purchase the troubled mortgages and other assets that are threatening to destabilize the entire economic structure. Instead of doing that, they're now admitting that they're now going to be using this money to infuse banks with capital, i.e. rain golden manna from heaven down on Wall Street so that they can give themselves bigger bonuses and buy up smaller banks. This is disgusting, and this is exactly what robbery looks like when it's done by people in shirts and ties carrying briefcases into backroom meetings. Now, to give credit where credit is due, some of the people in Congress are actually showing a backbone in sticking up to these bank-heisting thugs, as evidenced by a recent hearing of the Oversight Subcommittee on Domestic Policy chaired by Dennis Kucinich. In this meeting... Committee members didn't get a chance to grill Treasury Secretary Henry Paulson on the ridiculous way in which the bailout has become a bait-and-switch to simply hand money to the bankers. 
because, of course, Treasury Secretary Henry Paulson didn't show. Instead, for this committee hearing, Treasury Secretary and ex-Goldman Sachs CEO Henry Paulson sent his ex-Goldman Sachs lackey to answer the committee members' questions about the $700 billion bailout. Now, this lackey, a man by the extremely unlikely name of Neil Cash Carey, a man in his mid-30s and a recent MBA graduate, finds himself now in charge of what is, in effect, the largest hedge fund in the world, the Troubled Asset Relief Program, or TARP. Let's just listen to some of that committee hearing in which committee chairman Dennis Kucinich grills Neil Kashkari about his ridiculous lies and obfuscations surrounding the gigantic bank heist which is currently taking place at the expense of the American public. What we have here is a situation where uh, banks are, are hoarding the money that they're getting from the TARP. They're using the money to purchase other banks. We still have a credit freeze. I'm looking at your testimony. You're saying uh, credit markets were largely frozen, denying financial institutions, businesses, consumers access to vital funding and credit. Financial institutions were under, were under extreme pressure. Investor confidence in our system was dangerously low. Hello, are we in a different universe here? It's same situation prevails today. And, and yet your testimony acts as though, well, you know, we're just merrily skipping along our way here. We, we've got millions of people threatened with losing their homes. And the underlying problem is that banks are now increasing their interest rates in order to get more customers. Think about this now. It's counterintuitive to your troubled asset relief program. You're now saying we're going to put the money into the banks, into these financial institutions, shore up finance capital. Well, finance capital now is seeing that the only way they can survive is to start to raise their interest rates and give away some of the money that they're giving, that the government's giving to them. At the same time, you're picking winners and losers. How do you reconcile these policy reversals? You know, in, in, uh, and why won't Treasury act swiftly and forcefully to maximize assistance to homeowners under TARP and play a significant role in modification of home loans in, in, uh, at risk of imminent default? Why not? Can you tell this committee why you thought National City was too weak to save? Do you consider the negative effects on on uh, local employment and ripple effects of more layoffs in an economically depressed region. I mean, you think about it. Congress, in its wisdom, uh, Mr. Issa, and you and I talked about this, uh, we, we fought for some provisions that would help inner cities that were suffering uh, from the most foreclosure. Cleveland uh, certainly qualified for that. Don't you look at the impact of your decisions on regional economies? Do you give it any consideration at all? Congressman, we review applications that the regulators submit to us with their recommendations. If a regulator does not submit an application to Treasury because a regulator deems a financial institution is going to fail, we can't review it. And I don't think it's a good use of taxpayer money to put taxpayer capital into a financial institution that's going to fail. Well, you know what? That, that statement that you just made, you will hear about for the rest of your career. Uh, my time has expired. Uh, I'm going to come back to this question. Uh, we're going to go to uh, Mr. Issa. Once again, those few congressmen who are actually attempting to make a difference, like Dennis Kucinich, as well as some of the other ranking members of that committee, should be applauded for their efforts in attempting to get some accountability from the banksters who are currently robbing the American taxpayers of trillions of dollars.
To put this into perspective, I'd like to listen to a clip from a mainline finance and investment news broadcast called Financial Sense, which can be found at financialsense.com. On the October 11th edition of the Financial Sense News Hour with Jim Puplava, they featured Bud Burrell, a 30-year veteran of the Wall Street investment bank brokerage firm Circuit, and a man not known for speaking in hyperbole about financial situations. However, in this edition of the program, the gloves were off, and some very candid talk took place about how we arrived in this mess, and who exactly is responsible, and even what the eventual outcome might really be. Now, the entire program is definitely worth listening to, and I will provide a link to it, of course, in the documentation section of today's episode. Although, as a word of warning, it does contain a lot of very in-depth and technical jargon regarding economic matters, so it's not for the faint of heart. But I do think it's incumbent upon us to take the time and effort to familiarize ourselves with some of these very important terms which are going to affect us for years, if not decades, to come. So I do suggest that you go and listen to this Financial Sense News Hour edition in its entirety and try to learn a little bit more about some of the terms they're using. However, in this clip, we're going to concentrate on who they think is to blame and what should be done about this financial mess. I guess where I'm leading this, we've seen where Congress has been on the take uh, with Fannie and Freddie, and they're still on the take. One of the presidential candidates has been on the take. The SEC turns the other way. How does this get resolved? Is the Justice Department, what about the FBI investigations into this? Do you think anything will come of that, or is this just a, a show? I think there are people within Department of Justice who would like to see this stopped. I don't know if they're, I don't think they're in charge. I have communicated directly with two White House general counsel, with an attorney general, with numerous federal investigative agencies, with federal, four federal, four or five federal task forces. I've lost track. I can't remember anymore. But the point I'm trying to make to you is they seem to think that they are not accountable to the American public. Well, I'm seeing more and more people become aware of what naked short-selling is and how adverse it is for markets. And the bottom line is the people who are responsible for this subprime crisis are our politicians, the people who write our laws, because they wouldn't allow those laws to be properly enforced with ethical and rational controls. And I've got to tell you, somebody's just got to say to them, you know, enough, stop, no more, or we're going to throw you in jail. Or worst case is, you know, if you've stolen money and shipped it offshore, you know, we're going to give you an option. Bring it back from offshore or lose your passport and die in a jail cell. Ten trillion dollars at least has been shipped offshore. Ten trillion. Our total retirement accounts in this country are only 17 trillion. Jim, this is, this is as close to being out of control, and I don't like being negative. The talking heads on CNBC never talk about a meltdown. That's the only possible potential outcome. I've been calling it for telling people for four years, reel it in and control your greed or you're going to destroy the system. So they're, they're not just biting the hand that fed them. They're killing the lifestyle structure that supports them. It, it's amazing when you see this. I mean, I can look at this sequentially. But when I'm looking at this, how could we have gotten to where we are today? If I would have gone on the air 
in January and said that the major brokerage firms would go under, the largest insurance company would go under, Fannie and Freddie would go under, WAMU and all these banks, people would have thought I was nuts. But if you look at the sequence here, beginning, going back once again to the Community Reinvestment Act, its enhancement in 95 under Clinton, getting rid of Glass-Steagall, Sarbanes-Oxley, mark-to-market accounting, lifting of leverage rules, the lifting of the uptick rules, reg show. There is a pattern here that plays into, it would be like if you were to say, let's put the mafia in charge, and what would the mafia like to see? Every single one of these steps. But you don't hear any of this laid out in the way I just did. If you're even reading the Wall Street Journal, you may get snippets here and there. Well, maybe some naked short selling here or maybe some of this mark-to-market accounting. And here we are on the day you and I are talking about. The Fed is intervening in the commercial paper market now. The Fed never before, even our commodities market. Let me ask you this. Given the corruption that we've seen here with our mortgage securities, is the U.S., in essence right now, in the process of not only forfeiting its role as the financial center of the world, but also in danger of losing the status of the dollar and the currency of the world? Because the markets are so corrupt here. How can you trade commodities here where the commodity prices are driven so low and yet you can't get a hold of the, there's shortages. You can't get gold buffaloes, uh, gold eagles, silver eagles without paying premiums way above where the spot price is. You're seeing the classic signal, a supply-demand imbalance. You're seeing excessive supply being created through the artificial creation of supply by electronic counterfeiting. And when they say they're selling something, they present, you know, the markets always presume there's something there to, that is actually being sold. And that's a, that is a completely fallacious assumption. You cannot look at any security, stocks, bonds, physical forwards, futures, options, and presume that a seller actually owns anything. It's catastrophic for the issue and concepts of, under our Constitution of title. The Fifth Amendment implications are staggering. Staggering, and yet no one, no one has the nerve or the or the courage or the moral integrity to confront this. And if they did, this would stop so fast it would snap everyone's neck. One person only needs to stand up. Tricky part about it is I don't know what's going to happen to that person. There are you know organized crime interests globally that would probably try to assassinate that person. Organized crime is in this up to their elbows. I interviewed one convicted criminal felon of a major organized crime family, and the bottom line is he said that this form of financial fraud, meaning counterfeiting of securities, is the new drugs. They realize they can make a lot more money with a lot less heavy lifting by doing financial fraud in syndicates than they can by actually shipping and delivering something. And that's what nobody here is getting. This is a pattern, and there are people in charge of this globally. And the other thing you have to understand, the numbers in terms of dollars and currencies and assets are so enormous. If anyone thinks it's possible for this to happen without the global banking backbone seeing it, again, they are ignorant of the process. Everything happens on a banking backbone. 
everything. Is it that corrupt? In other words, this almost reminds me of the, the fall of the Roman Empire, where the Senate became so corrupt, you went to a dictatorship with the emperors, the emperors became corrupt Correct. and crazy, where you know, you'd go from one emperor to another. I mean, if you look at even some of the political leadership, where you're looking around the globe, whether you're looking at prime ministers in Japan or presidents or prime ministers in Italy, we're, we're going through them like a dozen eggs. It's just one leader after another, and who knows? Maybe we'll throw the Republicans out this time, and then two years from now we'll be throwing the Democrats out. It, it just doesn't... Where does this lead? Dictatorship? Is it going to take a strong man that finally comes up and takes reins and, and cleans it up, or where do we go? I don't know. Maybe we've reached the point of uh, non-sustainability of our democracy. I'm, I think that's pretty, we're pretty close to that point right now. They've actually brought back military units from overseas, reportedly, to control civil unrest, which is a violation of the whole posse comitatus statute of the Constitution. That hasn't happened since Waco, between you and I. My concern, if I, not, I really, I, I don't have an answer for this, Jim, is that maybe a constitutional convention is needed here, where we basically just, in a chess analogy, knock all the pieces off the board and restart the game. I'm not sure anything short of that is going to clean up this mess. And it's a mess. I've never, except for, you know, issues of where I was positioned when I went to the military, I was really prepared to make the military a life profession for myself. Injuries and more kept me out of that. But I would tell you, in no uncertain terms, that there are Americans who are simply not going to tolerate it. And if they have to tear the government down and start a new constitutional convention and reinvent our government and our laws from scratch, it'd have to be healthier than what we've got. You know, it's amazing. In this presidential election, there was a gentleman by the name of Ron Paul. Yeah, I know him. And it came out there, talked about the unsoundness, talked about what we were doing to the Constitution. Unfortunately, he didn't garner any support within the Republican Party. Well, it was worse than that. The press annihilated him. Because he was against their interests. Yeah, they made him sound like uh, some whacked-out dude. But, you know, all the things that he was warning and talking about, we're seeing unfold here. I'm sympathetic to Paul's position because you've got to, if you go back and read everything that I've written since 2002, this is precisely what I told everyone would happen if they allowed this naked short-selling to continue without abatement. The amazing thing about this, and the, and I'm not sure... I guess maybe looking at this from an optimist point of view, when I see people like Ron Paul, people like yourself and others out there, we did a special on crime of the century. We we talked about it last year. I did a five-part special. And one of the things that we did is we said, look, turn this in, people, to the SEC. We had one thing I've learned from all of this. I can't even trust my government. No, you cannot. Once again, Bud Burrell, mainline financial analyst, talking about revolution on the streets, talking about civil unrest, talking about the Army Brigade, which was recently deployed as part of NORTHCOM's homeland defense tours in order to combat civil unrest in the United States, and talking about Ron Paul being correct. Of course, listeners of the Corbett Report will already know that Ron Paul was correct and saw this coming a long time in advance and has some very definite solutions about what to do about this problem. And it's now we start to enter the territory of the end-the-fed nature of this program. 
The U.S. dollar is in serious trouble because of the loose monetary policy of the privately owned central bank, the Federal Reserve. And a key indication of that just came out yesterday in the Guardian.co.uk under the headline, Iran Switches Reserves to Gold Report. Quote, Iran has converted financial reserves into gold to avoid future problems, an advisor to President Mahmoud Ahmadinejad said in comments published on Saturday after the price of oil fell more than 60% from a peak in July. Iran, the world's fourth largest oil producer, is under UN and US sanctions over its disputed nuclear program and is now also facing declining revenue from its oil exports after crude prices tumbled. With the plans of the presidency, the country's money reserves were changed into gold so that we wouldn't be faced with many problems in the future, presidential advisor Mojtaba Samurai Hashemi was quoted as saying by Business Daily Pool. He gave no figures or other details. End quote. Now the significance of this move is immediately apparent to one and all, and that's that if foreign governments start moving out of the U.S. dollar, like Iran apparently already has, into gold reserves or into any other form of currency, the U.S. dollar will collapse. Of course, China and Japan hold trillions of dollars of U.S. debt and are taking on more all the time by buying U.S.-backed securities, including, of course, T-bills. But once they stop doing this, and of course once they start dumping their U.S. dollar-denominated reserves, the U.S. dollar will collapse. Again, this is further backed up by a recent report from ArabiaMoney.net. Saudi Arabia buys $3.5 billion of gold in two weeks, from November 13, 2008. Reports like these are incredibly worrying, because when the U.S. dollar collapses, the new world order is all but assured. The next step is the creation of regional currencies regulated by regional financial regulatory boards, which of course become de facto regional governments, which will feed into a world bank and international monetary fund system, which is the new world order government. This is all predicted, it's all been seen in advance, people have been warning about it for decades, and we are seeing it come to fruition before our eyes. These are world-changing times, and indeed, civil unrest of some form or another would seem to be a likely result of any economic collapse in the Western world, as seems almost inevitable at this point. What can be done before this collapse happens, to attempt to head off the effects of the coming depression. We, as members of the public, must try to steer the discourse away from giving more power to these bankers to run international regulatory boards, which will feed into the creation of global government, and trying to direct that power back where it belongs to the people. How do we take back the power from these banksters who are running the economy into the ground on purpose? The only way to do that is to try to take back the most fundamental part of any democratic system, which is the creation of money. There is a reason that the founding fathers of the United States of America put in the Constitution that Congress was responsible for minting 
the money to be used in the United States as legal tender, and that only gold and silver would be accepted as such tender. There is a reason that that was put into the Constitution, and it's a reason that we've gone over in previous episodes of the Corbett Report. But of course, in 1913, as we now know, the Federal Reserve took over the United States government. The private bankers came in, lobbied, and established their own privately held central bank, which prints the money for the U.S. government, of course, at interest. What was once done by the U.S. government, debt-free and interest-free, is now done by a privately owned central bank, which can create money backed up by nothing, which is to say as much money as the U.S. government ever wants. This is how wars are financed. This is how the military-industrial complex is fed and nurtured. This is how the banksters built up the quadrillion-dollar derivatives bubble, which they are now going to pop in order to come in and buy up all the assets of the real economy at pennies on the dollar. Because, let me put out this bold prediction, Goldman Sachs is not going to fold. J.P. Morgan Chase is not going to fold. These monster banks, these monster financial institutions, are going to come in and try to buy up the entire real economy. We already see this with larger banks swallowing up smaller banks. All aided by the Federal Reserve, that creature from Jekyll Island. Now, of course, for my listeners who don't know about the history of the Federal Reserve, I urge you to do your research about it and find out what a complete travesty and fraud that is. And of course, as I've mentioned before, the absolute best place to go for information about the Federal Reserve is the documentary The Money Masters. It is the graduate course on the Federal Reserve System. And now, finally, we turn to solutions. Indeed, one of the only solutions that is possible, and that is to try to take back the powers of the Federal Reserve and put them in the hands of the people. To be clear, what is needed is not a revolution. It is not civil unrest. It is not a constitutional convention, as suggested by Bud Burrell in the Financial Sense News Hour that we listened to earlier. All that is needed is a return to the Constitution, a restoration, not a revolution. It is here that we turn to End the Fed. End the Fed is a national campaign in the United States that can be found at endthefed.us. The first major action of this campaign is a nationwide rally that is going to be held this coming Saturday, November 22, 2008, which of course, my listeners will remember, also marks the anniversary of the assassination of JFK, who by the way, issued an executive order the year before his death, which ultimately sought the abolition of the Federal Reserve and the reinstitution of U.S. notes, not Federal Reserve notes. From the website endthefed.us, under the heading Why End the Fed, the following can be found about the rally taking place on November 22nd. Quote, End the Fed, Nationwide Rally for Sound Constitutional Money. At this very moment, the Federal Reserve Bank and its owners are bringing to a conclusion the planned implosion of the financial economy of the United States. 
They're consolidating assets and control over the nation's financial infrastructure as they ready the next stage of socialist tyranny. On November 22, 2008, 98 years after the meeting at the exclusive resort on Jekyll Island, where the international bankers initiated their plans, there will be protests at every Federal Reserve Bank and office in the country in 38 cities. Activists will demand an end to private banker control over the nation's money supply and the return to a hard, commodity-backed monetary system. Join us. End quote. Now this rally, taking place outside of every Federal Reserve branch bank in the United States, in some 38 cities, has been endorsed by Congressman Ron Paul, Governor Jesse Ventura, G. Edward Griffin, Gary Franchi, Kevin Barrett, Ted Anderson, Bob Chapman, Cindy Sheehan, and of course many others. And I would highly suggest that my listeners at least check out the website. And certainly, for any American listeners, prepare to get involved, get out there, and help rally to end the Federal Reserve System. The only change that the people can affect that will bring the power of the economic system back within the control of the people and not cede more of that power to the banksters. In order to find out more about the End the Fed rally, I contacted the organizer of the End the Fed campaign, Stephen Vincent. The full audio of our interview is now up on the Corbett Report website at corbettreport.com, and I suggest my listeners check it out. But right now I'd like to listen to an extended excerpt from that interview in which Stephen Vincent talks about the End the Fed campaign, its ultimate goals, and more specifically about what it's hoping to accomplish and how people can get involved with the nationwide rally next Saturday. In this excerpt, Stephen Vincent starts by talking about the origin of the name End the Fed. Um, End the Fed sort of started as a chant, really. Uh, when Ron Paul was speaking after the New Hampshire primary, uh, his supporters started to chant, and the Fed, and the Fed, and it just sort of took off and became a very popular chant that people, uh, anytime he would mention monetary policy or the Federal Reserve or the economy, people would just break out into this end the Fed chant. And uh, at the rally for the Republic, <laughs> And several times before he even got a chance to talk about uh, the Federal Reserve, people were chanting, end the Fed. And uh, so it became quite a very popular uh, uh, chant. It obviously indicated that something was on people's minds on the grassroots level. And I think that people, when they find out <clears throat> that at the core of all the problems that we have as a nation, politically and economically, uh, lies this monetary system of fiat money, of debt-based fiat money, and privately controlled debt-based fiat money, unconstitutionally given over to a uh, private monopoly of central uh, of, of bankers. Uh, when they figure that out, uh, it, it you know they become first, I think, very upset, uh, and then very motivated to do something about it. Um, people feel, I think, disempowered when they just don't know what the problem is and what to do about it. And once they find out what the problem is, where, what is the root cause, 
then they become very enthused uh, because once you know what the problem is, well, then you're, I think, at least halfway on uh, the road to, to solving it. And uh, so we've been getting quite a fantastic response to the End the Fed project. Uh, the sign-ups on the website uh, and all of the organizing groups are growing exponentially. Uh, the the uh, My inbox is full of sign-ups on a minute-by-minute basis, just cramming my inbox. It's, it's quite amazing. It's spreading virally. Uh, and um, we're looking for a very, uh, very uh, interesting day on November 22nd. Uh, it's impossible to uh, prognosticate exactly how many people will be showing up at every single Federal Reserve office and bank on November 22nd, but uh, it should be a significant number. Um, we do hope that uh, we'll get some media coverage out of it. We say that on November 22nd, the end begins. Uh, it's not the, uh, the last time we'll be uh, rallying for sound money. Uh, at uh, these Federal Reserve banks and offices. Uh, we will continue to do this. Uh, and it also is the kickoff of a campaign, uh, an action program that we are in the process of developing. Uh, first, of course, is the November 22nd rallies for sound money to generate public, public awareness and media attention. Uh, that will roll into a public educational campaign, a petition drive, and a congressional lobbying campaign for H.R. 2755, which is Ron Paul's bill to abolish the Federal Reserve and repeal the Federal Reserve Act. And uh, so we'll be hoping to present to the new Congress as they come in in January with uh, millions of signatures from Americans who do not want uh, this system to continue and want to return to constitutional sound money and a repeal of the Federal Reserve Act. Uh, and as well as signatures, uh, phone calls, faxes, and emails. Um, <clears throat> we want to get Ron Paul some uh, co-sponsors on that bill and get that get that bill out of committee and on the House floor and get people talking about it and debating it. Uh, other measures that we're looking at developing over time is a campaign for public congressional audit of the Federal Reserve Bank, uh, a, a campaign for a public congressional audit of the gold held by the U.S. Treasury Department, legal challenges to the constitutional validity of the Federal Reserve Bank and the Federal Reserve Notes, uh, the development of alternate com- commodity-backed currencies, local and community currencies as well, uh, the development of free market barter and trade systems, the establishment of private banking institutions based on precious metals and commodities, uh, a, a, a possible program of civil disobedience of some kind, and uh, we also are looking at, uh, you know, processes of uh, election of representatives supportive of a free economy, sound money, the rule of law, and constitutional principles. So uh, November 22nd is the beginning. Uh, the end begins for the Fed, and uh, the beginning <laughs> begins for the uh, grassroots transpartisan citizens movement for sound money on uh, November 22nd. There's 39 cities uh, with Fed banks and Fed offices. However, there are rallies in, in more cities than that. Probably, I would say, upwards of 50 different uh, cities are going to be having some kind of a end-the-Fed activity. 
on that day. All right. Well, every single one of the policies that you've talked about for this uh, campaign in the future is exciting. And I think um, I certainly would encourage my listeners to look into it for themselves. And also, of course, to support your activities next Saturday. How can people find out more information about uh, the events next Saturday and where and when they'll be taking place? Well, the best thing to do is go to endthefed.us. And there's an organizing groups tab in the menu. Just click on that, scroll down, and you'll find... Uh, a listing of all the cities that are participating. Well, not all, but probably most of them. Uh, there's probably activities going on out there that we don't even know about because the thing has gone just completely viral and people are just picking up the ball and going with it on their own, which is great. Um, and uh, there are organizing groups on a number of different sites, including Restore the Republic and the Fed USA. Uh, there's also a Facebook and a uh, uh, MySpace as well. And, uh, you know, you can connect up in lots of different ways with groups in your local area um, and contact the local organizers to get involved. Um, we also have uh, T-shirts and uh, bumper stickers and also a uh, new campaign to stamp out the Fed. Stamp out the Fed means uh, get yourself an ink stamp. And, well, you could apply that ink stamp to things that, you know, circulate around and pass through many people's hands and, you know, and the ink, st- ink stamp says, uh, end the feds, uh, sound money for America, support H.R. 2755. Another thing that people can do. Another effective way to get the word out. Um, tell us about some of the people who are endorsing this campaign. Well, uh, Ron Paul will actually be speaking at the uh, Houston uh, branch. Uh, we have recently gotten an endorsement from Cindy Sheehan, uh, who will probably be speaking at the San Francisco branch. Uh, and we're you know, really happy about that because <clears throat> we really want to see this become a very transpartisan um, thing it, that encompasses the entire political spectrum. Uh, Chuck Baldwin, uh, Governor Jesse Ventura, G. Edward Griffin, uh, Adam Kokech of uh, the uh, Iraq Veterans Against the War, uh, Senator Mike Ravel, um, and uh, quite a number of other uh, 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 endorsements that can be found right on the, the website. Um, and lots of different organizations participating from across the spectrum. It's just really quite, uh, quite uh, amazing to see people coming together. Like I said, once people figure out what is the root cause, you know, I have a lot of people that I know in the, in the peace movement and uh, talk to them about it and and you know, I mean, the way to look at it is this. There's no way in hell that they could finance these endless wars if it wasn't for the funny money fiat monetary system, where they can just print up endless quantities of dollars to, uh, uh, to pay for these wars. So if you really want peace, you've got to go to the root of the problem. It's the Fed and the Federal Reserve banking system. And uh, people see the wisdom of that. You've got people like Dennis Kucinich, who recently, really, he's starting to sound more and more like Ron Paul every single day. Uh, and uh, there is a possibility that he will actually has expressed some interest uh, in uh, in being at the Cleveland Fed. And that's not confirmed yet, but it's possible that he's going to be at the Cleveland Fed and he has expressed interest in uh, being there and uh, in supporting what we're doing. So the coalition that we're building is uh, really quite something, um, and again, I think it just goes to the fact that um, if you if you have an issue, 
with uh, our political and economic system. And uh, you're trying to figure out, well, what's the root cause? When you come to that conclusion, it's the Fed. You've got to come to the conclusion and the Fed. And uh, so I think we're going to build a really great, powerful, transpartisan citizens movement. I'd, I'd, I'd say right now uh, we can declare that that end the Fed is the most powerful uh, citizens movement for change in this country right now. Uh, there's really nothing like it. Uh, it's catching fire in a big, big way. Um, and uh, we're going to put the fear into the, uh, into the powers that be because the people are waking up. And they're not not just waking up; they're, they're taking action uh, with with this uh, in the Fed project. Um, and uh, we get a lot of real strong people that are coming to this. Uh, they're going to get behind it and uh, develop this entire program. And uh, I think this is really you know the next stage in that uh, revolution that everyone keeps talking about. You know, I think this is it. Well, it certainly is exciting to see people from both sides of the political spectrum waking up to the phony left-right political paradigm and waking up to the true political paradigm of the people versus the oligarchical interests behind the scenes. Um, it is an exciting campaign. And how about for those people who aren't in the 39 cities that in which the events will be taking place next Saturday? How can they support your efforts not only next Saturday, but longer term as the End the Fed project continues? Well, you know, you can go to Restore the Republic or uh, uh, or End the Fed USA or any of the other uh, sites that are hosting uh, uh, local organizing groups and form your own group. You know, if there isn't one in your city, form one on your own. Uh, just take the free membership, sign up, click a few buttons, and you formed your own group, and suddenly you're the group leader for your city. I had somebody from Indianapolis call me up today and said, you know, it's pretty far from Indianapolis to the nearest uh, 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 Fed for us, uh, but we got a lot of people here in Indy that want to do something. Uh, what do you say? Can we do something here? And I said, sure, just go ahead and start yourself up. And then you go to the website. We have brochures. We have flyers. We have posters that you can download. Uh, download them and print them out uh, at your local, you know, copy shop, and, uh, and away you go. Uh, this is grassroots. It's definitely not a... Um, centrally planned uh, effort. Uh, what we're doing from a central location is providing inspiration, providing uh, direction, uh, providing theme, um, uh, and uh, guidance, and ideas, and resources, and linking people together. But the implementation is pure grassroots. You know, it's pure local, uh, people taking taking the ball and running with it, and um, and developing it uh, on their own local level, and it's happening. People are doing it. It's really, uh, it's really taken off uh, virally. Um, it, you know, it was building very strongly up until uh, November fourth. But you know, once that election was out of the way, then that's when things really started to take off because you know that uh, that distraction of the uh, selection process was finally uh, behind us. All right. Well, Mr. Vincent, this is a very exciting campaign, and I hope we can have you again uh, in the future as the campaign continues and continues to gain momentum. Um, but thank you once again for taking the time to talk with me today. Absolutely. And uh, again, just visit endthefed.us, and you'll uh, find your local organizing group there. And uh, we'll look forward to, uh, to working with you um, and uh, really moving this forward. All right. Thank you very much. Thanks. 
I would like to reiterate my support for the End the Fed campaign, and indeed I am endorsing the campaign. Of course, I don't think this is the silver bullet which will solve all of our economic problems, but it will be one of the fundamental steps that is necessary in order to begin returning any sort of stability to the financial system. Of course, with any such major change in thinking about the financial system and the way it is ordered, there are many intermediary steps that have to be taken. And again, there are other ways that people can get involved. But End the Fed is one campaign that people can rally around, which is important because it's a grassroots organization, which encourages people to become their own leaders to organize in spontaneous ways that are appropriate to whatever locality and whatever situation you find yourself in. It's organizations like this, and the Fed, or like We Are Change, which are the true grassroots organizations that through which we can affect real change, not the phony kind spouted by the Obamazoids. Again, no change is possible unless we start by becoming our own leaders, taking the initiative, and taking action. And once again, this is something that is important for all of my listeners, not just my American listeners. It's important for all of us to find ways to try to take control back within the scope and the realm of the public, rather than ceding it to foreign outside interests over which we have no control and in which we have no say. I'd like to stress once again there are many ways in which we can affect change economically, and I hope to be providing more of those ideas through interviews I hope to conduct not only in the coming week, but in the coming months. So please stay tuned to the Corbett Report, and specifically to our interviews subscription feed, in order to stay up to date with some of these ideas. This is a vastly complex subject, but it boils down to some very simple ideas. We cannot afford to cede our sovereignty and our liberties any more to outside interests. We must take responsibility for our own liberty, and we must guard it vigilantly. On that note, I'd like to return to the beginning of this episode of the podcast, to Ron Paul at the Rally for the Republic and his End the Fed speech. That's it for today. I am your host, James Corbett, thanking you for joining me for this edition of the Corbett Report and reminding you to stay tuned to the website this week for the release of the trailer for our new documentary, Al-Qaeda Doesn't Exist. And please join me again next week for another edition of the Corbett Report. There have been some serious consequences of our lack of respect and our loss of liberty and lack of concern and defense of our republic. And we're suffering the consequences. This is what we're talking about. How can we reverse this trend? I think we have to understand how it happened, what the problems were, and what we have to aim for. But we've had a lot of problems because of this. Number one, economic problems, because they do not understand the Constitution and economics on monetaries. I mean, it is very clear what we should be doing. The founders knew and understood something about inflation. The runaway inflation of the continental dollar was devastating to the economy, so they were explicit. They said no emitting of bills of credit, no printing money, no paper money, and that only gold and silver should be legal tender.
Not yet. Didn't give you the signal yet. Now it comes. There is no authority in the Constitution authorizing a central bank, which means there should be no Federal Reserve System. Can you, can you believe that 18 months ago, at the beginning of this campaign, that I didn't believe any of you existed and cared about or understood anything about the Federal Reserve? It's great. The only one in men and now. Fed Reserve has got to go Meeting ends is getting tough Shout it out, we've had enough Let's put it out of our misery The Fed Reserve must cease to be We must end the Fed Reserve Wake up, people, live and learn. There's no store of value in a fern. All my gumbo rangers know. We're freaking doomed, it's a horror show. Government promise ain't worth a damn. The Fed is an outrageous scam. Cascari, um, in the neighborhood I grew up in, in the inner city of Baltimore, one of the things that you tried to do was make sure that you were not considered a chump. And what chump meant was that you didn't want to see want people to see you as just somebody they could get over on. And I'm just wondering how you feel about an AIG giving $503 million worth of bonuses out of one hand and accepting $154 billion from hard-working taxpayers. I, you know, because I'm trying to get, I'm trying to make sure you get it. Is Kashkari a chump? 